Let's take our Bibles, and if you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, and chapter number 5, we have been uh, spending some time focusing at the response of the Apostle Peter to what the rulers of that day said, did we not tell you to stop preaching and teaching in this name? And Peter's response is, I think ought to be an encouragement to us because his response is all about the Lord. And I want to look at leading up to that response again. Notice with me Acts 5, verse 27. The Bible says, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did not we straightly command you that ye should not teach in this name? Isn't it amazing they wouldn't even say his name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things, and so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. I want to bring your attention to verse 31 and We have been moving through each one of those verses we talked about in verse 30. If you remember how God raised up Jesus, not in the sense that he raised him from the dead, but raised him, brought him into this world, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And then the rulers, they slew him and and he hanged on a tree. But then verse 31, him hath God exalted. That's the resurrection. God raised Ye slew, and God has exalted him. But notice here what he says after that. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior. I want to preach uh, this morning on Jesus Christ, a prince and savior. Jesus Christ, a prince and a savior. As we look at this uh, chapter, there is no doubt we see the great conflict against the gospel message. And we ask ourselves today, what is the gospel? The gospel is very clearly Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Uh, That's what the Bible declares. And as a matter of fact, the very first message from the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost was beginning with Jesus of Nazareth. And uh, let's go back there. I want you to see here in verse uh, chapter 2. In verse 22, he says, Ye men of Israel, hear these words, and here is what the message is all about, Jesus of Nazareth. And by the time Peter is done with the message, notice what the Bible says in verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel, so he began with saying, Hear ye house of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth. And by verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel Know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, whom ye have crucified, 
both Lord and Christ. The message of the gospel is all about a person. It's not about a work. It's not about a thing. It's not about a system of religion. It's about the person of Jesus Christ and who He is. The gospel is found in the person of Christ. As we look at this passage, I think about those two expressions that the Apostle Peter, again, he is bold in proclaiming the gospel. He is not deterred from proclaiming the gospel uh, because of who the gospel is about. How God raised Jesus Christ, and we were witnesses of that. How you crucified Him by the predetermined counsel and foreknowledge of God. And God has now exalted Him, and so Peter is not deterred. But here, he gives a title about Jesus Christ, two words to describe the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is Him as a prince and a savior. A prince and a savior. As we study the word of God right from the beginning in Genesis chapter from Genesis chapter 3 there are two histories i would say that you can find the history of man and you can also find at the same time the history of god if you remember after adam and eve with cain and abel after cain slew his brother abel from then you begin to trace the line of Cain, and I would say that that is the history of man. But then when Seth came, after Abel had died, the Bible says, then men begin to call upon the name of the Lord. And from that moment on, throughout the remainder of the Bible, you have two types of history. You have the history of man, man building a name for themselves, establishing cities, trying to reach God on their own, and then you have the history of God's people. As you read throughout the pages of the Old Testament, uh, the, uh, the lineage of God's people through whom Messiah would come becomes clearer and clearer, narrower and narrower, so that when you tie, by the time you reach the New Testament, there is no doubt as to who Jesus Christ is. Uh, you find that, that unfolding drama of redemption all throughout this uh, Word of God, and as we think about the statement of Peter here, he says that this Jesus Christ... God has exalted him uh, at his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. I want to preach on Jesus Christ as a prince, a savior, and I want to give you three truths concerning our Lord Jesus Christ in this message, what is in the heart and the mind of Peter that caused him to be undeterred from the threats. He says in verse 29, we ought to obey God rather than men. And so we should do the same today in the 21st century if we are going to be like the first century church. And what Peter's focus is on here in this passage is on the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to notice, first of all, His rule as prince. As you think about the word prince that we find in verse 31, the word prince simply means the chief leader, uh, the one who is the author, the captain. The, another word that could be closely associated with the word prince is the word Lord. That the apostle Peter preached on the day of Pentecost when he says, God hath made him both Lord and Christ. And here in the same way, although using different words, the apostle Peter says, 
Prince and Savior, Lord and Christ. And the first thing that we see about the Lord is His rule as Prince. As we study the Old Testament and we think about the history of God that is traced throughout the Old Testament, it is clearly understood that Jesus Christ would be a ruler and a prince. Right from Isaiah chapter 9, if you remember the prophecy about the child that was to be born, the Bible says in Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder." And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And so, no doubt, the Apostle Peter is making back a reference to this title about the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is a prince. The Bible says in Isaiah 9, And of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth forever and even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. As a matter of fact, as soon as you get into the New Testament, in Luke chapter 1, when the angel appeared to Mary, he told Mary, Blessed art thou among women. But then he tells her in Luke 1.29, when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. You see, Jesus Christ is declared to be a prince, to be a ruler. But the truth is, as we look at this world, we would say, well, He is not in charge because the world does what they want to do. In a sense, they've rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. It is interesting that on this scene, the Apostle Peter says Jesus calls Jesus Christ a prince, but yet he has been rejected by the people there in Jerusalem. Not only has he been rejected, he has been unjustly put to death as they accused him of blasphemy and other things, they had to bring in false witnesses. Even Pilate said, I find no fault in this man. He even tried to release the Lord Jesus Christ. And we say, well, Jesus Christ is not the prince of the world. Uh, He doesn't seem to be in charge, but yet here Peter stands before the Sanhedrin council and he declares Jesus Christ to be a prince. And so he is. Now notice here, Peter doesn't say he's going to be a prince. It says he is a prince and a savior. And the truth is what we find in that passage is right off the bat as the Lord Jesus Christ is called a prince, a contrast between the world system and the kingdom of God. Between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God. You remember as Jesus Christ was standing before Pilate, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight? 
But my kingdom is not of this world. And so we think about Jesus Christ and we don't tend to look at him as a prince or the people of that day didn't tend to look at him as a prince. But Peter declared that he was a prince. Jesus Christ, if you remember, before he ascended to heaven, he gave the disciples the command to go into all the world and to preach the gospel to every creature. But right before he said that, he remember what he said? All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. You see, all power belongs to Him. All power belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. But the truth is, as we find it in Acts chapter 2, the world has refused to acknowledge His rule and His power. The world has constantly, right since the beginning, uh, when you find those two histories working themselves out throughout the pages of human history up until this day, there are really two types of history that we acknowledge. There's the history of man, man's attempts as religion, man's attempts to dethrone God, but then you find all throughout at the same time, God's history that becomes clear. And men have always dismissed God's history, dismissed God's rule and authority and power. And here Peter established once again our Lord's authority. Colossians 3.1 tells us Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Hebrews 1.3 says when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Revelation chapter 1, 11 verse 15 says, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And He shall reign forever and ever. And that's why the Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 2 verse 10, that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, as we come together, we gather in this place because we see Jesus Christ as our Prince. We live, if you would, as God's people outside of the world system. The world system lives for the kingdoms of this world. And the kingdoms of this world, they just come and go all the time, do they not? It's almost like this statement that God hath made Him both Prince and Savior. Prince has the idea that His throne is unmoved. God is unaffected. He is undeterred. He is undisturbed. And He is untouched by all the threats that men can can bring. You see, Peter was bold because he saw Jesus Christ as a prince. The Sanhedrin said, we have the rule. And you know what Peter is probably thinking in his mind? No, Jesus is a prince. Your rule will come and go. But his will never be affected. As we study the different empires in the history of the world, I'm certain that you uh, find that interesting. Well, maybe you don't, but I find it interesting. I, when I grew up, I was not really interested in history. Uh, I, it seems to me that as I started reading the Word of God, after God called me to preach, all of a sudden I, be, I became very interested in history. But there are two histories that are running simultaneously. There is the history of man, and more importantly, the history of God. Some people have said history is His story. And truly it is. But if you read uh, 
about the decline and the fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, Edward Gibbon wrote uh, a book entitled The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Edward Gibbon was a British historian who lived from 1737 to 1794. And moreover, he was not a fan of the Christian faith at all. But he listed a number of reasons for the collapse of the Roman Empire where some people have called the greatest empire. How did the Roman Empire fall? How did that kingdom in this world rise to its height but then fell? And I think it is interesting as a man who did, was not a fan of Christianity, the reasons why that he enumerated as to why the Roman Empire fell, and he listed this. Number one, the rapid increase of divorce with the undermining of the sanctity of the home, which is the basis of society. That's what he said. Number two, higher and higher taxes and the spreading of public money on bread and circuses. Boy, there's a circus going on in our country today, isn't there? <laughs> Number three, the mad craze for pleasure. Sports becoming every year more exciting and more brutal. You know, we have uh, sports now today like the UFC, where people are basically beating themselves, each other, to a pulp where there's blood sp spattered everywhere. And, they, and, and people love it more and more. Number four, the building of gigantic armies to fight external enemies when the most deadly enemy the decadence of the people lay within. And number five, he says the decay of religion. Faith fading into mere form, losing touch with life, and becoming impotent to guide it. That was his five, and by the way, he was not a Christian. Five reasons as to the Klein of the Roman Empire. And what I'm telling you today is as you look throughout history, you see empires come and you see them go. Uh, they always rise and then they go uh, because they mess things up. They never ask themselves the right questions. Uh, today we have a society that is completely confused. They say, well, we need to have less prisons and less police inform enforcements. And we have, and by the way, this last year, uh, they've released inmates and then put preachers in jail. That's strange, isn't it? A man in New York City just a few uh, uh, weeks ago was released after he had stabbed his mother to death. After spending 16 years in jail, he assaulted a woman on the street. And people are wondering why. We, we look at the world and we ask, how, how does a world decay? A world decays when they, recognize, when they fail to recognize the prince. The one who is in charge. The one who is to rule. And they seek to dethrone him. You see, people never answer the questions. What they say is, hey, we need better prisons, and we need better beds, and we need better opportunities, and we need retraining. And they never answer the question, why do people go to prison? And I'll tell you why, because they're wicked. You see, you cannot change society and make it better until you change the nature of man. But when Jesus Christ is not recognized as a prince, that is an utter impossibility. That's why Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two twenty-one, 21, He says, Render therefore unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, 
but unto God, the things that are God. There's two types of uh, things that we look at in this world. There's the kingdoms of this world and how we function within that, but also what we have to recognize above all is what belongs to God. And so we find here, first of all, as Christ is called the prince, his rule as prince, but number two, as we think not only about his history, now we turn and we see his righteousness as Savior. In Acts 5, Peter says, Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a Savior. Those two words are seem to not go together, do they? The prince, the ruler, the chief captain, the Lord, the one who should be reverenced and bowed down to, is also a Savior. <laughs> what wonderful news about the Savior. What does that mean for us? Well, if you remember back in Acts chapter 4, when the Jewish leaders told Peter not to preach and teach in his name, you remember what... Um, Peter said in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. There is no other name that can save but the name of Jesus Christ. And so we see here that Jesus is not only a prince, but he is a savior. Go with me to Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13, we have another message here. And in the midst of this message, by the way, it'd, be, it'd, be, it'd do us well to pattern how we preach after the messages that we find in the Word of God. And in Acts chapter 13, if you go down here in the middle of this message, in verse number 38... In verse 37, he just talked about how God raised him again. He saw no corruption, quoted from Psalm, the psalmist. Notice verse 38. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. Now the man he's talking about is Jesus Christ. And by him all that believe are justified from all things from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. Do we see that here? Him that is preached, Jesus Christ that is preached, He offers forgiveness of sins and justification from all things. That's what we get in Jesus Christ. Why? Because we know that we cannot get justification from the law of Moses. The law of Moses could never justify us. It could never reconcile to us to God. It could never bring us to God. Uh, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we find here uh, Paul talking about the Lord Jesus Christ and who He is and His work of justification and forgiveness. And notice 2 Corinthians 5, if you go down with me to verse 19. And Paul writes, To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. What do we do? When we go out and we seek to preach the gospel of the lost, what is the message? What is the end goal of the message? It is reconciliation with God. We are telling people how they can be reconciled with God. And we're telling them it is not by keeping the law that you are reconciled with God because you are sinful. It is not by being baptized that you are reconciled with God. That's a work. It is that by the justification of the Lord Jesus Christ who gives you the forgiveness of sins. 
The gospel message is about how you and I can be reconciled to God. He goes on to say, notice in verse 20, And now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God had beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. For he, God, hath made him Christ to be sin for us, who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. How are we made righteous in Christ? Not by anything you've done. Uh, not by any work of righteousness, but by His blood He saved us. And so we find that the Lord Jesus Christ is the uh, central person of that message. If you remember the Apostle Paul, if you turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul was talking about how proud he was, and we, by the way, we know that. He was a very religious man. He was a Pharisee. He was very proud of his religion. He was trusting in himself. He was proud of who he was and what he had accomplished concerning his own testimony before he met the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. He shares that testimony in Philippians chapter 3. Notice what he says, Philippians 3 verse 4. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Do you want to get into a competition? About who's better? Uh, nobody's better than me. That's basically what the or nobody was better than me. Verse five: Circumcised the eighth day in accordance to the law of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. That's a good tribe. An Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, as touching righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. You see, the record of the Apostle Paul, if you, if you put his life uh, right by the law, he was blameless. In other words, nobody could find anything to put against the Apostle Paul, uh, as Saul, before he was saved. He was blameless. You see, the man, that man who previously had been proud of his righteousness, uh, then was on the, ra- on, on the way, on the road to Damascus. And you remember what happened in Damascus? He met the Lord Jesus Christ. And you remember what happened on the road to Damascus? He who was proud, who had previously been proud of his righteousness, was now looking into the face of absolute righteousness. Perfect holiness. And then Paul saw the Lord Christ, and he found himself completely inadequate in light of his righteousness. And does so why, what does Paul say in Philippians 3, verse 7? He changes, right, from being blameless according to the law, verse 7, but what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count the bundung that I may win Christ. And here it is in verse 9, and be found in Him not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. (laughs) Do you see, Paul? Concerning righteousness, concerning the law, righteousness, blameless. But then, on the road to Damascus, he met the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what he did not see anymore? Him as blameless. 
He, he was on his hand. He was on his face on the ground before the Lord in the face of perfect righteousness. He recognized that he could not compare himself to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ is not only a prince, but he, also, he is also a savior. If you've never trusted him as your savior, I know many of you have, but if you've never have, I would encourage you to trust him by faith. Stop trusting and relying upon your own righteousness, your own goodness, or your perceived holiness, and trust completely in the blood of Jesus Christ. He is righteous, and God sent His Son Jesus Christ to be sin for us, who Himself knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. The only way we can have access to a holy God is if we are holy, and we are only possibly made holy through the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we are in Christ by faith, then are we acceptable in the sight of God. Not because of us, but because of Christ. So Jesus Christ, notice we find His rule as Prince, His righteousness as Savior, but thirdly, His requirement for forgiveness. If you go back with me to Acts chapter 5, Paul does not end there. I believe he is looking right in the face of the Sanhedrin council and those who are standing there and telling them, don't preach or teach in his name. And he just said, we rather obey God than man. And here in verse 31, he says that God hath exalted him, uh, his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give. Here it is. Why has Jesus, why is Jesus Christ called a prince and a savior? For to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Christ is prince. He is savior. But what is required of us? What is it that God demands of us? What is the message? Well, remember the first message from the apostle Peter after he preached Jesus Christ to the people. What should we do? And Peter said, repent. Now, that is the requirement for forgiveness. Notice, repentance comes before forgiveness. That repentance and forgiveness of sins. This is what our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ taught. Let's go back to Luke 24. Unless you doubt me, let's look to the Word of God. Go with me to Luke 24. In Luke chapter 24, again, this is the... The time he is spending with his disciples before the ascension, he gives them the command to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Notice what he tells them in Luke 24, and let's begin in verse 45. The Bible says, Then opened he their understanding, that they might understand the Scriptures, and said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And, here is verse 47, that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in His name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. Again, the order that the Lord Jesus Christ gave is, preach repentance and remission of sins. What comes first is repentance. In Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul is preaching. If you go there, you find the disciples obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul, as the obedient servant of the Lord, he is preaching in Acts 17. And notice with me in verse 30, as he's looking at these Athenians who are uh, given to idolatry, he introduced them to the unknown God. And notice what he tells them, Acts 18, verse 30. And the times of this ignorance God weaked at, but now commendeth all men everywhere to repent. 
because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all, and that he hath raised him from the dead. And so here is clearly from the Apostle Paul, God commands all men everywhere to repent. Now let's go back to Acts 5. Peter says, God hath exalted him, had his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. The Lord Jesus Christ as the ruler has orchestrated all of human history to make sure that people could identify who the seed of the woman from Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 was, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's orchestrated human history to enable that, and He has become also a Savior for man. His righteousness is what saves us, not our own. But what is the call? What is God what is the call to the world? Uh, the call to the world here is as Peter had preached in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, said repent. Here he says in Acts chapter 6, he says the same thing. What, uh, why, why did Jesus Christ do all this? To give repentance. You see, there is a direct confrontation with the Sanhedrin council. Peter, if you would, in a very eloquent way, he is basically telling them, repent and receive forgiveness of sins. What does it mean to repent? Uh, what is understood by this word repentance? A lot of times people say, oh, repent, repent, repent. And often people, I think that there's a lot of confusion today about what the word means. People sometimes add things to it. People make it seem something that it is not. But what does it mean to repent? And let me expound on this word because repentance comes before forgiveness. Doesn't it not in the Bible? To give repentance and forgiveness of sins. What is repentance? Well, if you study the word, the English word repent comes from the Latin word that means think again. Uh, this is the first call of the gospel message unto all men. It is a call for all men to think. That's the first call. Think again. That's what Paul is telling these, uh, the, the Sanhedrin council. Think again about the Lord Jesus Christ. You crucified Him. You rejected Him. Think again. This is why He is a prince and a savior. For to give repentance. But also it's not just think. Again, I believe it's more than that. The Greek word used from our text means basically change your mind. That's what it means. Change your mind. Therefore, in the first place we have to think. That's a good thing, isn't it? And second, we must change our mind. You see, a lot of times people think, but they don't change their mind. A lot of times people may well consider, I think, right off the bat of King Agrippa. You remember, as Paul was giving his testimony, he talked about the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what he said to King Agrippa? Believest thou? And he says, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. I believe King Agrippa was thinking. I just don't think he changed his mind. He was thinking. But he did not change his mind. Almost, he said. Thou persuadest me to be a Christian. You say, well, what, what do we have to change our minds about? Well, change your mind about everything. <laughs> change your mind about the world. 
Change your mind, the mind about yourself, about your condition, that you are under the wrath of the Almighty God. Change your mind about who God is, how He created you. He's given you the breath that you breathe right now. Change your mind about who Jesus Christ is. He came to die for your sin. He didn't come to teach you how to live a good life. He came to die for you. And He offers forgiveness of sin. In Hebrews 9, 27, the Bible says, As it is appointed to men once to die, but after this, what death, the judgment. Change your mind about life and death. But I believe there is more in the word understood in the word repent. In other words, first of all, think again. It's a, it's a confrontation. Think again. Think about this. And then the call to repent is to, for us to change your mind. Change your mind about God, about Christ, about life, about death, about eternal life. But I believe there is more than I believe. Thirdly, sorrow will inevitably be the result of our thinking. If we think again about Christ and we change a mind about Him, then all of a sudden when we change the amount about ourselves and where we are in this world, how we are under the wrath of God. Isn't that what Romans 1 says? As Paul writes to the believers at Rome, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein in the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. But then he says, for the wrath of God, in verse 18, is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. That's where all men are, under the wrath of God. And when we change our minds about where we are, inevitably repentance means sorrow as a result of our thinking and our minds changing. Now, sorrow is not expressed in the same with, with different people. Sometimes people re recognize the Lord Jesus Christ and they are so heartbroken that tears are flowing free from their eyes. Sometimes it may not be as an emotional experience, but understand what happens when someone repents. They are thinking, they change their mind, and then sorrow is the, inevitably the result of their thinking. You remember in Luke 18.31, the Pharisee went into the temple, he prays, Ah, oh, thank God that I'm not like this publican over here. Remember what the publican said? He was actually standing afar off, not in the public view. He was standing afar off, hid from everybody. He was ashamed. He would not so much as lift up his eyes to heaven. In that secret corner over there, he was beating upon his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What is that? That is sorrow because of the thinking and his mind changing about his sin. That publican had lived in his sin. He recognizes now his sinfulness, and his heart is broken because he feels the heavy weight of the wrath of God upon him. And under that intense weight, he sorrows because now his mind has changed, and he repents before God. The Pharisee's mind did not change. He remained as a righteous man in the sight of God, and so he thought he was, that he went home and he was not justified. But the publican went home justified. But I believe there's another thing about repentance that is included. Not only do we understand repentance as thinking again 
about changing of the mind, about sorrow that will inevitably be the result of thinking. But finally, in our sorrow, biblical repentance means that in our sorrow, we run to Christ. That's what it means to repent. We think again about Christ, and some of you, you, you live your life for a while, and you dismiss the Lord Jesus Christ. But some, somewhere along the line, you heard the gospel, and you thought again. And then your mind changed. And then it brought about sorrow because of your mind changing about Jesus Christ. And then, inevitably, finally, in your sorrow, you ran to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is biblical repentance. In Acts chapter 20, if you turn there with me, in Acts 20, again, the Apostle Paul is preaching, and notice here in his message in Acts 20, verse 19, He says, serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptation which befell me by the lying wind of the Jews and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you but have showed you and have taught you publicly from house to house testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. You see that? Repentance, what is it that they were testifying and preaching? Repentance toward God. Acknowledging that you are under the wrath of God. Stop looking at yourself as righteous. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. And we deserve hell. And as we think about the call of repentance, it is not just a sorrow. Oh, I'm dirty, I'm filthy. But then the answer is provided. That's the wonderful thing about the gospel. That's the wonderful thing about First Aid Baptist Church. We're not around proclaiming and tearing everybody down. And what we're saying is we are tearing everybody down as we've been torn down under the weight of the holiness of God and the wrath of God and the justice and the judgment of God. And under that intense weight, the answer was provided in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we saw under that intense sorrow, Christ is the answer. Repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. People often acknowledge their sinfulness, but they never turn to Christ in faith. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. In Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is expounding on the law as to the purpose of the law. In Galatians chapter 3, Notice verse 22, Galatians 3.22, the Bible says, But the Scripture hath concluded all under what? Sin. All under sin. That the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. Verse 23, But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster, to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. You see what the law did in our lives? The law, don't, don't misunderstand, the law is not a way to get to God. The law is an exposition of God's holiness. 
And when we see the law of God, and we read something like this, Thou shalt not covet. Our mouth is stopped. And we become guilty before God. When we read, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, we fall on our face. For so often have we spoken the name of God without any consideration or regard for who He is. And that's blasphemy. As we fall under the intense weight of the law, the only thing that that gives us is sorrow. But you see what the law does? The law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. So Jesus Christ, the apostle Peter, he's standing in here before the Sanhedrin. He says, God hath exalted him and caused him to sit on his right hand, has made him a prince and a savior. And what is the call today to the world? Repentance and forgiveness of sins. May I encourage you, if you're not a born-again Christian, may I encourage you to think again. And to change your mind about how you attain righteousness. And to be fully aware of the holiness of God and encourage you to fall under the intense weight of the wrath of God and His holiness. And in sorrow, not just repent, but use that sorrow to turn to Christ for salvation. Remember, God hath made Him Christ to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Righteousness is only attained through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Peter says, there is none other name given among men whereby we must be saved. That's wonderful news, isn't it? If you've trusted Christ as a Savior, you can rejoice in that. Share that wonderful news. But if you're not, I would encourage you to do exactly what Peter said. Repent and receive forgiveness. Recognize who Jesus Christ is and trust Him by faith. He will save you. He will.